All right, interactive 11 o'clock crowd, I need you to, uh, I need you to stretch your phalanges, your fingers, because I have a question and I need uh, full class participation. Okay, uh, here's the question. Uh, how many of you have ever wanted a second chance? Right here. That's something. Raise your hand if you've ever wanted a second chance. All right, good, good. Uh, second chances are hard to come by, aren't they? Uh, we all desire in our life, in a couple of places, at least, if, we, if not more, if not 5, 10, 15, or 20 different things in our lives, we've wanted a, a second chance. Uh, maybe it was that big entrance exam that you really didn't study that hard for, uh, and you took the test and you failed. People are giggling in here, which means that was probably you. Uh, what about the relationship that you messed up? Right, that relationship that you were in, uh, you didn't try, you didn't, you didn't give all you had, you didn't care about them, you didn't really nurture them the way that they needed and the way that you knew you were supposed to, uh, and it failed. Like how many of us have had those uh, desires for a second chance? What about uh, adults, uh, parents, grandparents? Like how many of you would love another chance to raise your grown children to know the Lord? Okay, what about another opportunity to reconcile your failed marriage? Right? In any of those areas, in all those areas, aren't they places in our society, especially within the church, that we all desire to have a second chance? You know, the thing about a second chance is that they don't come around often. Uh, and the reason we desire second chances so often and they become the thoughts in our minds is because not only did we fail the first time, right? We didn't just fail the first time around. The enchanting nature of a second chance is due to the fact that we know they just don't come around often. Right? We just know that when we've messed up, there's just often not a second chance. We hope for one, right? We, we live in a country because we believe there's one, and we love that ideal, but we know not only is there very few second chances, most of the time, second chances don't come around at all. And that's the truth about our lives and each of our own experiences, is there's so many times in our life where things happened and there wasn't a second chance, we have to deal with the repercussions and the consequences of what we had done, knowing that there will never be another chance. You see, the good news for us is that we serve a God who has offered every single person in the world a second chance. Right? I mean, that's the good news of the gospel, and that's why if you're in here and you've been redeemed, you've turned from your sins, you've turned to God, right, you know that we have a second chance. Uh, you also know that if you were able to turn around and talk to people in here who don't know God in that way, who have never turned from their sins and trusted in Him, you would tell them this, that second chances ought not to be wasted because we don't get a lot of them. Our society, we understand we don't get a lot of second chances. And when you get a second chance, you ought to respond to the opportunity of a second chance. And that's exactly how I put it in this morning's sermon is this, that second chances should compel you to respond rightly to the grace of God. Right? Some of you are in here, uh, and you've had a lot of close-to-death, near-death experiences. Right? And the fact that you're sitting here in this room is an opportunity for you to respond rightly to the grace of God. And the reality of the matter is God does give second chances. But what comes with a second chance is the need to rightly respond to the chance that God has given you. And that's what Jonah is all about, right? If you grew up and you thought that Jonah was about a big fish or that Jonah was about this measly old terrible prophet, you got the message wrong, right? Jonah is all about God. Jonah is about God and his offer to extend grace to a sinful, wicked people who would turn from their sin. 
I say that because we have to understand a good, robust understanding of biblical theology. Did I lose you right there? Okay. For us to understand that God has promised a day in history, church, when he will judge each person according to his work. I know you don't like it, the nasty J word. That's a bad word, right? But there is a reality that we all have to face that justice will be served. Right? Every, often we talk about the justice system and the need and our desire for perfect justice to win out always. Right? It's our desire that justice would win. That when somebody commits a crime, that they would receive what is just of their works. When we see murders, murderers and we see them at court... We see him on the tribunal. What do we want? Justice. I was driving downtown in New Braunfels yesterday, and and on the square I saw people picketing, and they were picketing about human trafficking. Don't we all want all the human traffickers to pay perfect justice for their wrong? We do, don't we? Because it's wicked, and it's sinful, and it's wrong, and it's unjust. Well, there is coming a day... In history that's promised, that's been foretold since eternity past. We see it in Scripture now, and it's promised one day in the future that every person will be given the justice that they deserve. Romans 2, 4 through 6 says it this way. Romans 2, 4 through 6 says this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? You hear that? Right? So many people presume, right? They just assume that God is going to forever be rich in his patience and forbearance. Right? So many of us sit in this room and we think God's just going to let it go forever. Right? And a lot of people ask this question, even scripture brings it up, when people object to this idea that if God was going to come back, wouldn't he have done it already? I mean, that's what this text is saying. We presume on the fact that God's never going to make things right. God's never going to come back. The reason that God is waiting is because in his kindness, in his rich kindness, in his rich forbearance, in his rich patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Right? The reason that there is this gap between the ascension of Christ after he was risen from the dead and the time that Jesus comes back and he rules over the world is one thing. God's kindness and forbearance and patience not wishing that any would perish, but would all come to repentance. That's the reason that God has not came back. That's the reason that there's a gap between the, the, his ascension and his return is this whole big word called kindness. This whole big word called patience. That there's going to come a time where God is going to come back and he's going to do something. Listen as I continue. Verse 5. There's this time, right, it's coming, Right now we have this gap because he's trying to lead people to repentance, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Did you see that in the text? On the day of wrath. It's not just, you know, this uh, subjective wrath that God's going to bring about. No, there's a day on the eschatological calendar that there is a mark, kind of like every year on your birthday, you have like a little star right there because you're looking forward to it. There's a day where God is looking forward to bringing his justice to earth because you are too, right? You want all the wrong things right. How many want all the wrong things to be made right? Raise your hand. All right, how many of you want all the bad things to be made good? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, that is exactly what the day of judgment will do. That's the good news about God's coming justice, that there's a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, do you hear that? It's righteous judgment, right? Whatever you think judgment is, this is a righteous judgment. Like it's, it's the right judgment and it will be revealed. Verse six, 
He will render to each one according to his works. Period. Now, here's what that means, right? Everyone will be judged according to their works, every soul that has ever lived. All the 8 billion people here now, all the people who are, who are alive before us, everyone will be judged according to their works. There's a quite a difference, though, between the Christian, right, those who've responded by turning from their sins and trusting in Christ, and those who have not. The Christian will stand here, and they will be judged according to their works in Christ, right, in Christ. That is, as I stand before the tribunal, I will stand with Christ, so to speak, transposed over me, so that what God sees is Christ in me. Didn't we just sing that, right? Uh, all the things that I have, it's strange, it's divine, it's the promises of God, that it's not me, it's Christ in me. Well, that's how I am to be judged, Christ in me. When God sees me, he sees Christ. That's why Christ had to be punished. That's why Christ died, because what Hebrews teaches us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Did we hear that? When people ask, why did Jesus have to die? Well, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Put in simple terms, it's this. A price had to be paid for all wickedness. And Christ came to pay for wickedness on our behalf. And so there are those who have responded to that offer by turning from their sins and trusting in Christ. Therefore, Christ is transposed over them. The day of judgment, they are judged according to the righteousness of Christ. Now, there's all these over here who have never responded to God. You may believe in a God. You may believe in the truth of Scripture. But you never responded to the, to the God and his offer of salvation in Christ, and you stand over here. And on this same this day, right, the day of wrath, when God's judgment will be revealed, you stand over here, and this day of wrath is specifically set apart for these kind, these people over here, right, where you are judged actually according to your works, right? You're judged according to your actual life and deeds. Now, here's the problem. Uh, you may say you're good, but the Bible makes it clear that there is no one good, not even one. So the problem is, if I think I'm going to get into heaven because I'm good, I'm not. It'll never happen. And we also have people who say, well, God knows my heart. That, my friends, is the truest statement you've ever said and is the scariest thing about God's judgment because God does know your heart. And according to Scripture, your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and it shall not be trusted. So my goodness and my heart are not going to get me in eternity with God. And so I stand here, and I can't rest on my good works, and I can't rest on God knowing my heart to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way that I can rest assured that when the God's righteous judgment comes, I will be sitting on the right side of history, and it's here with Christ transposed over me because I trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. And it was his blood in place of mine, his righteousness in place of my unrighteousness. And the book of Jonah has everything to do with that everything to do with that. Over and over again in Scripture, God consistently lays in front of you and I and all of the nations a second chance to respond to him. Did you know all that was found in Jonah chapter 3? We're going to jump in it right now. Okay, look at Jonah chapter 3. This morning in Jonah chapter 3, we again confront the gracious acts of God's second chances. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. We see, even in the first verse of Jonah chapter 3, we see this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You want to talk about second chances? The verse 1 of chapter 3 is already talking about second chances. 
you had this disobedient prophet who ran away from God. And God said, no, sir, my will, not yours. And he went and he grabbed him, and he threw him off a ship into the water, swallowed up by a massive fish, and then spit him back on the sores, and he said, let's try this again a second time. And so, honestly, obedience and God's will happens from chapter 3 down to the end of the book of Jonah in chapter 4. And so, really, I alluded to this in week number 1. If Jonah would have just done what he was supposed to, we could, we'd actually only have a two-week series in the book of Jonah. Because we would just be doing chapter 3 and chapter 4. But because of Jonah's wicked heart and his disobedience to God, we have chapters 1 and 2 that reminds us that God will too do that to us when we try to flee his presence, which we have found doesn't work. Amen? All right. So here we are, though, in chapter 3, verse 1, God gave Jonah a second chance. And he tells him this in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Not great morally, great as in massive, a monstrous city, a large city. And he says this to them, call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, I love this phrase, according to the word of the Lord. Right? In, in chapter 1, we see go to Nineveh, and what does it say right after that? Jonah fleed according to the word of Jonah. Okay, you see that. And in chapter 3, it says Nineveh rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That's a prophet who learned his lessons about the sovereignty of God. Right? And that should be our, our message for us. I'm going to do all things according to the word of the Lord. That should be something you go home with today. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Again, not in morals, but in its breadth. As a matter of fact, it says it was a three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city of Nineveh, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message. That was the sermon that Jonah preached to Nineveh. How would you like me to preach five words and walk off stage? I take offense to that. What we see is not only does Jonah get a second chance in verses 1 through 4, we also see that God gave Nineveh a second chance. And you say, well, where does it say second chance? It just says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, there's your second chance. Right? If we have this God that so many people think about, that he's an angry God, that he's a wrathful God, and that's all he is, then why does God give a message to Jonah to give to Nineveh before God's wrath pours out on them? If he is as angry and as wrathful as people say he is, why didn't he just destroy Nineveh? Why did he give a message to them beforehand? Well, it must be because God's desire wasn't condemnation, it was deliverance. It must be that God's true desire for them was that they took heed to the message and they responded to it. And they believed that God had a second chance for them. And that's all they had to do. All Nineveh had to do was believe God's offer of a second chance. Because that's what it says in verse 8. It's exactly what Nineveh did in verse 8. Look, Nineveh believed that God had a second chance in for them. And in verse 8 it says this. This is the decree that the king of Nineveh said. He says this, here's what we're going to need to do. I don't want man or beast. I don't want herd or flock. I don't want you eating or drinking anything. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Just imagine an old potato sack. You, you, anybody old enough to know potato sacks? Okay, okay. Uh, imagine that, right? They tore a little hole in it. They're wearing sackcloth, like potato sacks, and they have ashes on their head. I mean, that's, just, that's a message of repentance, isn't it? All right? I mean, that's what they're wearing because they said, Woe is me, for I am sinful. And they covered him in sackcloth. And he said, let them call out mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Here's something else you need to know about second chances. I love this. Here's what the king said. Let them call out to God. Let them turn away from his evil and the violence. Here's what is necessary for you to understand that you need a second chance. That you are sinful and you are violent. Right? This is something that Jonah didn't have to tell Nineveh. Right? Nineveh uh, Jonah didn't go to Nineveh and say, well, here's all the reasons why you're a sinner. Here's all the reasons you're bad. And here's all the reasons you need to turn to God given this second chance. They knew that in their hearts. They knew that in their lives. They looked at their city, they looked at their nation, and they realized that they were sinful and separated from God. One of the biggest hurdles that we have in our society is this subjective idea of who is good. And what we have to do is understand there is no one that is good. Right? When we talk about the need for a second chance, we all at least have to come to grips with the reality that I am evil and I am violent. And I think, you want to say the things out loud that you've had run through your mind this week? Anyone? Anyone? You know, no one wants to come up here and do that. Why? Because they're evil and they're wicked, aren't they? Right. We don't have to be told that we're evil and wicked. We know that. And so did Nineveh. They just said, you're right. We are sinful, we're evil, and we're violent, and that's what we need to do. We need to turn away from those things. Jonah knew that. Nineveh knew that. But did you know something else? God wants to give you a second chance. Did you realize that? I mean, everyone. God wants to give everyone on earth a second chance. And that is including you. But that means you, like Nineveh, need to do this. And it's point number one on your outline. You need to believe God gives second chances. You need to believe that God gives second chances. I want you to turn to a text And I want you to turn to it. I'm going to say it, and you're going to think you can memorize it, but I want you to turn to it anyway, because I'm going to read more than just John 3.16. Turn to John 3.16 in your Bible. Here, I'll do it with you. Here we go. John 3.16. Okay, when you're there, say amen. The right side is way faster than the left side. That's what I'm hearing today. All right. John 3, 16. I'll start. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here's the news. Verse 17. If you don't know this part. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I love this. Here's the offer of a second chance. For God so loved the world that he gave them a second chance in his only son, that so whoever believes in the second chance that is in Christ should not perish but have eternal life. There's your second chance in a nutshell. Okay? But listen, because it gets deeper than that. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Big question mark in our culture and in our society when we preach the gospel, which the gospel is literally uh, comes from the word evangelion, which is sometimes where you get the word evangelism, and it just means good news. But it's the good news of who? Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, people often think that's a message of condemnation or a message of judgment. But accordingly, it says here, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did we hear that? The message of the gospel is not a message of condemnation. Now, 
depending on who you are in here, you're like, yes, then you're like, what do you mean? Like, we need to figure this out. Well, let's keep going. So while the rest of the Bible matters. John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's an amen to that. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. That's the message of the gospel. The reason that Jesus didn't come to condemn anyone is because you didn't need any help being condemned. You stand condemned already. That's the message of the gospel is you're already bad, you're already wicked, and you're already condemned. The only thing Jesus came to do is make a way for you not to be condemned. Like you stood already in utter condemnation. And that's why the gospel says that whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the good news. If I trust in him, believe, pistis, faith, trust, if I trust in him, I will not be condemned. Forever does not believe in is condemned already because he has not believed or trusted in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Verse 19. The light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light. Now, I know there's a motif, there's a theme in the Bible, darkness, light, light, darkness. But just take the veil off of it. Here's the reality. People love their sin and love themselves rather than God. I mean, that's why we know that we're sinful. That's why we know we're wicked, because if God is perfect and just, and I don't love the things, all the things of God in his perfection and his absolute justice, that means I am a lover of darkness. I'm a lover of sin. So anything that God loves that I don't love means that I'm lacking and I'm sinful and I'm broken. Now, the people love the darkness rather than the light. All this in a culmination says this, because their works were evil. I mean, that's why... We are condemned because our works are evil. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Ninevites? Their works were evil. They were evil. Their their evil came up before the Lord, and he went and proclaimed judgment and the offer of a second chance. In the same way, we have the same message in the Gospel of John. Their works have come up before me. Their evil works. And I have offered them a second chance because they stand condemned. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true, right? That means that they come to the light. That means they come to know Christ so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God, right? The offer of a second chance is is clear, right? You You don't walk into condemnation. You sit in condemnation. The only thing you walk into is the grace and mercy of God. And so for you and I, we need to understand this, and it's the thrust of the whole book of Jonah, God's second chances are meant to produce a right response to the grace of God. Did you know that's what Jonah's about? You should write that down somewhere. God's second chances are meant to produce a right response to the grace of God. And this is what I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. The book of Jonah isn't about a big fish. Right? It's not about an awesome boat and sailors. Right? It's not about Nineveh. It's not about Jonah. It's about God. The book of Jonah is about God. There are three main characters in the book of Jonah, and it's God, God, God. Okay? And the whole book is about people understanding that when God gives a second chance, it's meant in our lives to produce a right response to the grace. Remember what that word meant? Unmerited favor of God. It's meant to produce a right response to us when it comes to God's unmerited favor. And it's the whole point of the book. As a matter of fact, verses 5 through 10 in Jonah chapter 3, uh, are really where the whole purpose of the book of Jonah begins to be unveiled. When we look at verses 5 through 10, it starts to show us the entire purpose of the book of Jonah. 
Let's just read it, verse 5 through 10. And the people of Nineveh, they believed God. Isn't that it right there? The second chance. They believed him. They believed that God was literally in 40 days going to overthrow Nineveh. Oh, if we believe that on the day of wrath, God will come pour out his righteous judgment, it will be revealed. It's the same message, you realize. But here we are in Nineveh, and the people believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Do you know what all that means? All that is just simply this, that they mourned their sin, and they acted in repentance. That's That's all of that. That's just what that means. And he issued a proclamation that is the king, and he said this, we're all going to call out to God, we're all going to turn from our sin, and we're all going to trust in him. Right? And that's why Jonah is codified in the Old Testament. You know, codified is put in a book, right? It's put in this collection. We have it in the Old Testament. It's in the canon of the Old Testament. Because this is not just a message for Nineveh. This was a message to Israel, and it's a message to you and me. Anybody remember in the first sermon when I said, uh, did anybody ever wonder why the book of Jonah is in the Old Testament? Remember I said we would answer that question? Well, here we are. Uh, There's something interesting that I want you to think. Uh, How many books in the Old Testament were written and the subjects in the book weren't Israel? How many Old Testament books are there where the main group of people being communicating with was not Israel? One. What is it? The book of Jonah. There's something interesting about this book. Is this book, if you read the text, seemingly has nothing to do with Israel. Then why is it in Israel's Bible. Like, why, why is it even in there if it didn't have anything to do with Israel? There's only one explanation. It has everything to do with Israel. And as a matter of fact, it does. It has everything to do with Israel. Because here's the reality, that Nineveh repented at the preaching of a lackluster prophet immediately upon hearing the word of God. Right? We have Jonah, I mean, just a terrible prophet. He, I mean, he wrote the book of Jonah, Jonah did, and he still doesn't paint himself in a very good picture. Right? I mean, he paints himself as he truly is. And he, he is disobedient. He doesn't even want to talk to Ninevites. He hates them. They're evil. He doesn't want anything to do with them. He disobeys God. And he goes to Nineveh, preaches five words, and the whole nation turns. The whole nation has a revival. They all turn from their sins. Right? This message is to Israel, because here's what was going on in Israel at the time. Israel would not repent of the preaching of some of the greatest prophets in history. At the same time that Jonah went to Nineveh, the northern kingdom of Israel, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, would not repent, even though they had some of the greatest prophets in the world. And so God sending Jonah to Nineveh was a message to Israel, and it looked a little bit like this. During Jonah's life, the time he was alive, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. All right, this was around 781 B.C., and the northern kingdom was ruled by Jeroboam II. And according to Kings, I believe chapter, 20, no, chapter 14, verse 24, God said he was an evil king. And so the northern kingdom where Jonah was prophesying, the northern kingdom that had split away from the southern kingdom because of disobedience, uh, their king was an evil king. Truly, every king who reigned in the northern kingdom was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Every single successive king in the northern kingdom of Israel was evil in the sight of the Lord. God said that they were prideful, they worshipped idols, they propagated injustice, and they ignored God. But this was the northern kingdom of Israel. But here's what's important for you and I to know. That God had given the northern kingdom great prophets. Ones that you and I still read today. Did you know the northern kingdom had prophets like Elijah? 
Elisha, Jonah himself, Amos, and Hosea. You probably read all of those prophets, haven't you? Those were all the prophets who prophesied the coming judgment of God to Israel if they would not repent. And they came and preached day in and day out. If you would turn from your evil ways and you would trust in God, he will relent from disaster. And some of the greatest prophets in the history of the world, day in and day out, preached this message to Israel and they would not repent. The measly old prophet Jonah walks in smelling like fish, right? Hadn't taken a shower in days. Walks into the middle of a city and says, yeah, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And everyone just goes into chaos and said, we must do something. We must repent. And Jonah himself is just surprised that this whole country would repent at the measly preaching of Jonah when Israel had some of the best prophets in the history of the world and they would not repent. You see, really what the book of Jonah is is a book of condemnation to the nation Israel who would not humble themselves before God. Yet even a pagan nation... And a debaucherous group of sailors on that ship repented at the first opportunity they received. That's the book of Jonah. That pagan people who did not even know God would repent at the first opportunity they received to know God when a whole nation that claimed to be God's nation wouldn't repent. Even when they had better prophets and better promises and a better kingdom and a better understanding of God. They had all the best, all the better, and they wouldn't respond. And yet Nineveh responded immediately. You see, this is important for you and I to understand because God promised Israel that if they would not repent from their evil, he would pour out his justice on them. Did you know that was the promise? Do you remember Amos? I want you to flip to Amos. It's, it's literally uh, just right behind Jonah, so don't, don't freak out. Okay? Just turn back like four pages. Uh, you get to the prophet Amos. And I'm going to look at chapter 4, uh, chapter four first. Uh, in Amos chapter 4, starting in verse 6, uh, I want to show you just how much God was trying to get their attention to get them to turn to him. Over and over and over again, God was trying to give Israel a second chance, a second chance, a second chance. Here, here's what it says. <clears throat> God told Israel, I gave you cleanness of teeth, which didn't mean that he sent dentists. It means that he didn't give them food. It means he kept food from them. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities and a lack of bread in all of your places. Listen to this. Yet you did not return to me. Return is just Hebrew for repent. I withheld these things from you, yet you did not repent, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and I'd send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not repent. This sounds like a lot like Jonah. Jonah wouldn't repent. God sent a storm. Jonah wouldn't repent. He made it worse. Right? Jonah wouldn't repent. He swallowed him with a big fish. Right? This, in the same, right, same pattern of God, our same God who lives through, he's very consistent God. The same patterns here. I struck you with a blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not repent. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. He's like, in the same way that I sent pestilence on Egypt when I brought you guys out of Egypt in the Exodus, I did the same to you. 
I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not repent, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, just like I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not repent, declares the Lord. Verse 12, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now that is a dangerous verse. Prepare to meet your God. Sounds a lot like verse number five of Romans two, doesn't it? That you are storing up for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. And then we have in, go to the chapter before, Amos 3. This is our last chapter in Amos. He tried to get Israel to turn, to turn, to repent, to repent, to repent. But here is the promise that he made that if they wouldn't. If you will not repent... Verse 11, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Right? That was the promise, the specific promise of God to Israel if they would not repent from their sins. You want to know what happened? Less than 50 years after Jonah's prophetic ministry in Israel, the Assyrians, which does that ring a bell to you? The Assyrians, right? the same people of Nineveh, the Assyrian nation, conquered the northern kingdom in 721 B.C. So we know how that story ended, don't we? Israel never repented, and God fulfilled his promise of conquering the northern kingdom because they would not repent. See, God had promised judgment unless Israel repented, and he kept his promise of perfect justice. Right? And before you get all like, you know, in your consternation because Israel, because Israel got destroyed, Israel was a wicked and evil nation just like Nineveh. Right? Israel withheld justice from their people. Israel's kings kept up wealth that was meant to go to the nation. The kings forgot God. The people didn't worship God. The people made idols and, and went after idols every day and didn't even think about God. They were evil. There is no one good, not even one. The best that Nineveh could hope for, the best that Israel could hope for, and the best that we can hope for is the second chance of God to respond and make a right response to God's second chance. Right? And that's the same message, did you know? The very same message that Jesus gave to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 12. You want to flip to another verse? I know you do. Matthew 12. Flip to Matthew 12. Now, I don't hear a lot of pages flipping. Matthew 12. I know, I'm giving you an arm workout today. Matthew 12. You need to see this. Because here's what I hope that you can do every time you leave Compass Bible Church. I want you to know, whatever that man just said was from the Bible, it wasn't from his opinion. All right, and so in order to do that, we've got to go to the Bible. What does the Bible say about that? Is a question that we always ask. And I want you to know that whatever we say is from right here. So Matthew 12 38 through 41, here's what happens. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Did you see that? Did you notice something else right before that? Verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation. Who else was an evil and adulterous generation? Nineveh. Israel, Israel in the first century, the whole world today, right? I mean, that's, that's your forecast of our society, isn't it? 
Oh, that evil and wicked generation. And they seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's this promise to them. Uh, The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was three days in the belly of that great fish, the Son of Man will also be three days in the grave, and on the third day, he'll raise. Now, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had no idea what that meant, right? He had no, they had no idea. But I bet your bottom dollar, when they heard the accounts that Jesus had raised from the dead, they thought, Matthew 28, verse 38 through 41. They didn't have Matthew 28, verse 31. But you get the point. They went back and they remembered. They said, uh-oh, that's exactly what he said. There's your sign, as Jeff Foxworthy would say. There's your sign. Right, there's your sign. And here's what it says. And this is what he says about the Pharisees and the scribes in Israel at that time. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. Did you, did you catch that? Again, there's this phrase, at the judgment. Not at a random, uh, subjective judgment. At the judgment. Right? There is going to be the judgment. Not a judgment, not some judgment. The judgment. The same judgment that we're talking about in Romans 2. On the day of wrath, on the day of judgment. And here's what it says about it. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Did you hear that? Jesus looks at these people and he says this. The people of Nineveh on the day of judgment, they're going to rise up and they're going to condemn you. And they're going to condemn you because of this. They had the worst prophet in the history of Israel that came to them, gave them a terrible sermon, and the minute that they heard it, they dropped to their knees and they repented. And he's like, and you, Israel, this is what he's saying to Israel. Israel, you had the greatest prophets in the history of the world. Nineveh had Jonah. Israel, you had Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And you have the greatest prophet in the history of the world, Jesus. And you will not repent. And they said, Nineveh will rise up on the day of judgment. And they will say, you stand condemned because you would not repent even after the greatest prophets in the history of the world told you over and over and over again. You see, Matthew 12 rings truer than ever today that Nineveh won't only rise up against Israel on the great day of judgment. Nineveh is going to rise up on the day of judgment to our generation and condemn many of us because they repented at Jonah's preaching and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, the reality of it is that there's nobody in history who has had more of God's truth codified in a book that's never had more of the reality of the promises of God than you and I. It wasn't until the 1500s that we even had a Bible put together the way that we've had it. People searched for the truth of God. They had a, a, a gospel here. They had Paul's letter here. They may have, if they were really wealthy and really well off, they may have had the Old Testament here. They never had it in this book, and yet we have it. Every one of us have this in our home. We have the promises of God, and it tells us over and over and over and over again that God has a second chance for everyone, and he calls everyone everywhere to repent. Because there is coming a day of judgment when everyone will be rendered to each according to his works. And Jesus has one message, the same message of the prophets, 
the same message of God throughout history, and that is point number two, repent. You need to repent from your sin. I know it. It's elementary. I get it. It's fundamental. It's fundamental to the truth of God's word, that he has called all people everywhere to repent, turn from their sins. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Acts 3.19 says this, Repent therefore. Repent therefore and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. That's the truth of the gospel and it's all of what Jonah is about. That if you would hear the promise of God and you would respond through turning from your sin, your sins may be blotted out. I get it. I know there's there's people in this room who they grew up, they raised their hands when somebody asked them if they wanted to give their life to Jesus. They raised their hands. You may have even prayed a prayer. But I'm I'm not asking what the pastor told you. I'm asking, what does God's word say? Repent. That's the word of salvation for people is to repent from their sins to turn from their sins and turn to God and trust in Him. I get it. You can, you can mentally assent to every true fact about the Bible. And amen to that, right? If you know so much about the Bible, good. You have more of the promises of God in your mind and your heart to prepare you for the moment of repentance. But there is not an amount of knowledge, remember over here, not amount of good works, no amount of self-justification, and no amount of Bible knowledge that's ever going to stand you before a holy God justified. There's only one way you stand before God justified, and it's in Christ. And the only way you get in Christ is when you repent from your sins and turn to God. And that's, that has been my prayer all week. As a matter of fact, that's the prayer of this whole church. That's the reason we're here, is that people would respond to the gospel. That there would be people in this room today that would respond to the gospel by turning from their sins and trusting in Christ. Now church, what I mean by church is I mean Christians, right? Those of you who have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ. Like Jonah, or I could argue unlike Jonah, right? you and I have a message that not only we should proclaim, that we would desire and want to proclaim. That you and I have the message of God that tells us that God is a God of second chances, and he proclaims the second chance in Christ, and he has called us to be ambassadors of God. That is, that God would make his appeal through us, that we would tell everyone, that we implore them, be reconciled to God. Right? That's the message of the ministry of reconciliation, and it's been given to us to go proclaim. And here's my concern, church. People who repent act like Ninevites. They fall to their knees, they recognize their insufficiency before a holy God, and they just immediately go, and they repent, and they turn, and they follow God. But my concern is Christians who have claimed to do that, when we tell them the great need to proclaim the message of God to the world, we sit here, we pray, we walk out the doors, and there's no urgency. Like they see the urgency of the need to repent, but they don't see the urgency of the church calling people to repentance. You see the problem. You see the distinction between the two. In church, it ought not to be so. 
That's why the church matters. That's why you and I matter. That God uses you and I as a means to see people saved. And if we don't have a message of urgent repentance, there is no response of urgent repentance. And that's why it matters that you and I share the gospel. That's why it matters that you and I proclaim the word of the Lord. That we could say to everyone everywhere, today, according to Hebrews 13, or 3, today, if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts. Right? That's the message of the gospel. Today, if you hear the gospel, do not harden your hearts. It's time for all of us, and for a Christian, it's time to us to respond to the command to proclaim the gospel. And if we're not a Christian in here, if we've never turned our lives to Christ through repenting of our sins, it's time to respond to God's gracious offer of a second chance. Let's pray. God, we recognize our own insufficiencies. We recognize that there is no one good, not even one and that you have made one way of salvation for all people, and that is in Christ. And it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, it has come to light in the New Testament, and is going to be fully revealed in the glorification of your Son in eternity. But you have made one thing clear through all time, that it is the repentance of sin that brings deliverance. And I pray, God, that we would... Not just think of when I raised my hand or when I prayed a prayer or when I learned all the things I learned about God, but to think about the time in my life when I repented of my sin and turned to God. That, God, that's the way that you tell us to come to you. And, God, I pray that we would take a note out of the book of the Ninevites and that we would immediately respond to the offer of the grace of God. And God, I pray that for the Christians in this room, God, that this would not just be another message that comes in and leaves our our heads. And maybe we didn't even prepare for the message even before we came here. We didn't think that, God, you had anything to say to us. But here we are. God, you have words for us. And you have a command that we would proclaim your message to this world, to our children, to our parents, to our family, God, all throughout this community. And I pray that this message would bear fruit of salvation in the lives of the city and the people all around the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.